If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. If you would, allow me to uh, pray for the Lord's blessing on the teaching. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, the exalted one, the risen Christ, our King, our Lord, our Savior, and it is our privilege and honor to praise him today as we gather as the body of Christ on this, the Lord's day, the day that our Lord rose from the grave, we celebrate week by week, generation after generation, Father, and you're worthy, you're worthy. Now we, uh, we turn our attention to the Word of God and we ask that you would please, by your Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts and our minds. May we be refreshed, may we be encouraged in your grace, may we be strengthened by the power of your might. Father, we look to you because we need you, God, and it's our highest honor to be able to bring you praise today. So be, be honored, be glorified, be exalted in our lives and in our assembly here today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've titled today's message, Exalting Christ. Exalting Christ. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about what that even means, the word exalt, I think it can be somewhat of a, a churchy word, or it's probably not a word we often use outside of the Christian context, but it is a beautiful word and concept, which I will unpack more today. I suppose you could subtitle this message, Keeping Jesus in His Rightful Place, Keeping Jesus Where He Belongs. I had a pastor friend years ago, he was telling me how he had been uh, really struggling, he was feeling very down and out. And one of his assistant pastors took note of this, and he came to him and he said, hey, you all right? And he began to confide in him a little bit, and his assistant pastor said to the pastor, it's lonely at the top, isn't it? And the, the pastor said, yeah, yeah, it is. He said, well, good news, you're not at the top, Jesus is. <laughs> Man, I mean, he, he served that pastor well, that's what he needed to hear. And that's the truth, Jesus is at the top. We're not at the top. Jesus is at the top. Jesus is to be exalted to the highest place, and that is, to, that is where he is to remain, on his throne. Not least of which in our lives. We are to remember always where Jesus belongs. Amen? To exalt him, the exalted one. So, in last week's message, we were introduced to a man named John the Baptist. Remember that? And I stated that though he was a baptizer... And obviously that is his, the name that we most often uh, understand him by. He was more importantly a witness. He was a witness. That was what he came to do. He came to point to another. That was his ministry. It was not about him. It was about Jesus. And even Jesus said that John was the greatest of all the prophets. I mean, imagine that. That's quite a commendation, wouldn't you say? Jesus said that John was the greatest. He had the greatest ministry, that's for sure. You had prophets of old who even wrote of this coming one, this Messiah, but they didn't even fully understand what they were talking about or writing about at times, Peter tells us. But John the Baptist was literally on the scene, preparing the hearts of the people to receive the coming one, Jesus Christ. And that's a privilege beyond any other. And that belonged to John the Baptist. So John had the privilege of pointing people to Christ and John truly exalted Jesus Christ. John exalted Jesus Christ over and over and over. 
So what is this word exalt? Well, there's really, I think, two main usages of the word. One is to raise to a higher rank or position of greater power, to elevate somebody, to raise them in rank. The, the other way that it is used is to hold someone or something in very high regard, to think or to speak very highly of that individual. And so we kind of see both of these when it comes to Jesus Christ, because God has exalted His Son to the highest place. He has raised Him in rank, and we exalt the Son, that is, to think highly of and to speak highly of. And we see both of those happening in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Therefore, God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see both of those things happening here in the same text. God has exalted His Son. The Father has exalted His Son. He has raised Him in rank. He has given Him the name that is above every other name. And as a result, every knee will bow and every tongue would confess that name to the glory of God the Father. You see that? And so, to exalt Christ, there's no greater honor. And honestly, that's, that's the cry of my heart and, and for this church, that we would worship Jesus, that we would praise Him, that we would exalt Him, that we would exalt Him. To exalt Christ, spreading His glory deeper in the church and broader in the world. Spreading the glory of His name. You know, unfortunately, many Christians in the, in the church and the world abroad are just not minded like this. You know, Christ-exalting, Christ-centered preaching, living for the glory of God is kind of a foreign concept. And that is true even for myself for many years. You know, it, it seems to me that many have seen the gospel as just entry level. Okay, I'm good with God. Now put that aside. Let's get into other things, deeper things, more important things. You know, you can hear amazing teaching with no Jesus or gospel to be found anywhere. That's a true statement. And uh, sometimes I'll even catch myself after having taught thinking, where did I even mention Jesus or when did I even preach the gospel in that message? That is all bad. That's all bad. Because Jesus said in a couple of places that the Scriptures testify of Him. Even the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament, is what He was talking about. He said to the Pharisees that you read the Scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but these testify of Me. These testify of the Son, Jesus. So whenever we approach the Word of God, we are looking for Christ. We are looking to extol Him and to preach the Gospel and to honor the Son. And so, you know, I have noticed, or at least this has been kind of my perception, I was talking to our life group about this last week, if I have a message that is very heavy with application, a lot of do's, like we need to do more of these things, that's what people want. People will lean forward in their seat because they just are hungry for give me more things to do. Give me more things to do. And then the reality is those things are probably forgotten immediately. Because if I were to stand up here today and say, so how did you guys do with the things I told you to do last week? You wouldn't even remember what 
And the same is true for me. I'm in the same boat because I have thought about that. What did my pastor teach last week? What did my pastor teach yesterday? And I can't at the top of my head even remember. We forget things so quickly. So I could give you a list of rules, do's and don'ts, and you can just be you know, convicted and all that just really stepped on my toes. And I was, oh man, the Lord just got me. And then you move on from here and it's on to the next thing. And so what is of most profit to us is to, to sit under the exaltation of Christ. Paul talks about how we behold Him. We behold His glory. And as we do, we are transformed. We are transformed by beholding the glory of the Son. And so conversely, when I'm in texts that are very theologically dense, um, I, I can see eyes glossing over, people yawning, people are, you know what I mean? And so I just think that in a lot of ways, we don't understand what it is that's in front of us when we are setting our hearts and our minds on the glories, the excellencies of Christ. You know, I've sat under some, some guys preaching about Jesus that had me like, I mean, just feeling crushed under the weight of glory. It was amazing. And I thought, I want to love Jesus like that. And I want to preach Jesus like that. I have seen, I have heard, I have tasted, and, and that's my desire. And, and as time has gone on, this, this desire to see Christ exalted and His glories preached and appreciated and spread abroad has only grown. And that's my desire for all of us. You know, furthermore, many Christians are being fed this idea that, you know, we're just always on the cusp of some kind of greatness. You know, there's just, I just know it. It's, it's right around the corner. There's this huge blessing coming your way. It's coming. And, uh, you know, on and on. I see Christians who get really disillusioned by that kind of teaching because it's, it does, it's not happening. It's not happening. Somehow it's supposed to be some kind of physical, practical, tangible blessing. You know, and, and what this really, I think, communicates is that we're at the center of it all. God exists to bless our lives and to do big things in our lives, and there's just always this great thing. We were meant for more, and it's coming, you know. And so the reality is we're not at the center of it all. We're not. Jesus is at the center of it all. And God is very concerned with bringing glory to His Son. And what is so awesome is that God will use us to that end. That is true greatness, True greatness is being used by the Father to glorify the Son in our lives, in our hearts, amen, in our communities. And that's what made John the Baptist so great. That's what made him so great, is that he was constantly pointing to the Son. He existed to bring glory to and exalt another. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. And we're actually going to look at two different texts from the Gospel of John. We're going to look at a passage in John chapter 1. And then we're going to flip over and look at a passage in John, John chapter 3. And so I've never really done that before. But uh, in both of these texts, we see John the Baptist in action. And I really believe that these are complementary texts. They just uh, go together so beautifully. And so with that, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 19. I know you're already there, but verse 19 specifically. Exalting Christ keeping Jesus in his rightful place. And we see such a glorious example of this in John the Baptist. I think there's much that we can learn from this. So point number one, point number one, what we see here is 
John exalting Christ in the midst of hostile powers. He is exalting Christ under, uh, I would say, intense pressure as the religious elite are there in his presence, pressing in on him. What an opportunity John has to exalt Christ. And so the first thing that we'll note is that John's testimony concerning himself. And it is what I would call a humble deflection. It's a humble deflection. Verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? So John's ministry at this point is so wildly popular that the religious elites actually send a delegation from Jerusalem to investigate who he was and what he was doing. And so um, I would like to turn our attention to some maps here. You know I love the maps. Every opportunity I get. And so we'll be coming back and visiting some of these. Forgive me if it's not the best quality. I didn't really check these ahead of time. But uh, we have really, if you look at Israel, the history of Israel, there's three main phases when you consider the maps. Not, not considering modern day. I'm not talking about modern day Israel. But there were the 12 tribes originally. This is what we have. When God, when God brought together the children of Israel... From, they, they came from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then they multiplied in Egypt and then came out of Egypt under Moses' leadership. And then Joshua took over and took them into the promised land and they conquered the land and it was divided up amongst the 12 different tribes. This is what it looked like. And so you had Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Zebulun, Issachar, um, Gad, Ephraim. Uh, did I say Zebulun already? And then Dan, Reuben, Judah, Simeon. There might have been another one or two in there that I missed, but you get the point. That's the 12 tribes of Israel. That is what is called the United Kingdom. And so Saul was raised up as the first king of this nation, and then he didn't do a very good job. And David was raised up, and David did an awesome job. He certainly had his, his failings, but he was a good king nonetheless. And then his son... Solomon was raised up, and the, the, the nation came to its zenith, really, under Solomon. It's the pinnacle of, of glory. But then when Solomon's son Rehoboam came into power, there was a split. And in the United Kingdom went, it became a divided kingdom. So can we look at that next map? And so it took the shape of a northern kingdom, which was called Israel. And this would be ten tribes to the north. And then two tribes to the south, Judah. Now, Simeon was actually right in, in there. So it's encapsulated inside Judah. So they couldn't escape or leave even if they wanted to. So you had the divided kingdoms. And that's what's going on in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, until the Assyrians took Israel out. And then the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians came and took Judah out. And then they were in the 70-year captivity and that is where Daniel, the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace, all of that took place during the 70-year captivity where Judah was taken out. So then they were brought back into the land 70 years later, third map. 
And it looked vastly different at this point. So what you basically had were three regions. You had Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And so that's what it looks like. There were no longer tribal allotments, and there was no longer a kingdom. There wasn't a northern and a southern kingdom. So here and now, with John the Baptist preaching, this is what it looked like. So Galilee up north was where Jesus spent the majority of his time with the disciples and it's kind of funny because this would kind of be like what we consider Southerners in the South. You know, they got that strong twang and they're country folks. Well, that's what the uh, Galileans were like. And so they were the Northerners, but they actually are kind of like what we would consider Southerners in the United States of America. And then down in Judea, this was the southernmost part uh, of Israel at this point. This is where Jerusalem is and where the, the center of worship is. And fascinating thing, if you ever wonder what Samaria, what that's all about, I'm sure you've heard of the Samaritans. When the Babylonians came and took the southern kingdom out to the 70-year captivity, they actually moved some of their own people into the land of Israel. They didn't take everybody out of Israel. They left some behind, and then they intermarried, and that is where the Samaritans came from. So fast forward, when they're in the land now, you have... Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and the Judeans uh, hated the Samaritans because they considered them to be traitors. They intermarried with the Babylonians. We'll get more into that in John chapter 4. But this is what it looks like now in the time of John, and we'll be coming back to this from time to time to uh, look at this map. And so uh, right now, let's see, Jerusalem is right here. Um, Bethany is right there. So John is in business. He's baptizing right here. And there is a delegation of Levites and priests sent by the Pharisees over to Bethany. Does that make sense? You got that? There will be a pop quiz after the service. All right. So thank you. So that's what it looks like. So they're down in the southernmost part of Israel at this point. They're in Judea. And John the Baptist is there in Bethany. He's baptizing. He has a, an extremely popular following at this point. And so the religious leaders, uh, they want to see what in the world is going on. And so there's a delegation of priests and Levites who are sent by the Pharisees. Now this was kind of interesting to me because um, a priest is a Levite. You can't be a priest and not be a Levite. And so, hence the term, the Levitical priesthood. And so there's some kind of distinction being made here in this group. And so the priests, generally speaking, they were the religious authorities of the day. They would go to God on behalf of the people. They were mediators, if you, would, if you will. And they presided over sacrificial and ceremonial rituals there in the land. That was the priests. They did the priestly duties there in the temple, so on and so forth. But then there are the Levites that are mentioned here in this text. And I think that the distinction that's being made here, um, at least one of the commentators that I read said that this is actually like a police force. Sometimes you'll hear the temple guard. And so the priests actually had temple police, priests who were police officers. And so this would have been like a security detachment, if you will. So you have the religious authorities, the priests, you have the, the temple police, the, the security detachment that is with them, and we're told that they are sent on behalf of the Pharisees. So this is an intimidating group. Now, who are the Pharisees? I know we talk about the Pharisees a lot. I'm sure if you've been 
you know, in the faith for more than a week, then you probably have heard of the Pharisees. But who were they exactly? Well, the word Pharisee means separated one. And they were known for their fierce separation. They would separate from anybody that they deemed unclean, unholy. And that was pretty much anybody but them. But, you know, they actually had a pretty cool heritage. A couple centuries before Christ, the Greek culture was so pervasive. Uh, Hellenization, that's the Greek culture being uh, forced upon, uh, you know, just different places as, as that culture came through. And so there were a group of people called the Hasidim, the Hasidim, which means the pious ones. They said, forget all of this. We're going back to the Bible. We're not going to be persuaded by this Greek culture. We're going to be separated from that. We're going to stand out. We're going to fight against that overwhelming force. And so this group, the Hasidim, arose. And there's so much I would love to get into here. It's truly fascinating. Things that happened between the Old and the New Testament time. But the the Hasidim, eventually, they splintered off into two groups. The Pharisees and the Essenes. I'll get into all of that later. But the Pharisees, they actually started out well. They were serious about the things of God. And uh, they were very faithful to that. But then they began to have prestige. They began to have favor. And it went to their heads. And then they became very corrupt, and it was all about appearance and man-pleasing and having position and rank and power, and so they became extremely hypocritical. And so by the time that Jesus steps on the scene, now these are kind of, you know, one of the very powerful religious influences there in Israel, and they don't like what they see. They don't like what's happening here. They're very threatened by John the Baptist, very threatened by Jesus when he comes on the scene. And so we just see this a perpetual enmity that happens between the Pharisees and Jesus because Jesus just flies in the face of everything that the Pharisees were about. And he would regularly rebuke them for their hypocrisy. So that's the Pharisees. And so we see this group here that has been sent from Jerusalem over to Bethany where John is, and this is quite the group. I mean, these are, if this was something to be intimidated by, I mean, I would say if there was anything, it would be this. And so they come up to John, and they want to know, who are you, and by what authority are you doing what you're doing? Now, John was baptizing people, but John's baptism wasn't really what we think of or understand when we think of baptism. Uh, this was more of, um, they had baptism rituals that already exist before John came along. And this was kind of like if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you wanted to proselytize and become a Jew, then you would go through this purification ritual. And uh, so it was already something that was kind of happening, but this was very different. And what was fascinating about John's baptism is that both Jews and Gentiles were being baptized. And so this would be totally humiliating for a Jew to identify essentially as a Gentile by submitting himself to a ritual that was really for non-Jews. And so it was really a humbling thing. But more than anything, this was a preparation. John is on the scene. He had been prophesied about in the Old Testament. Here he is. The Messiah is coming. You had religious people who were kind of like, had some idea of what they thought Jesus was going to be like or the Messiah, and they were watching to one degree or the other. But then you had a lot of people who had probably just given up. 
400 years of silence from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's not coming. We all got problems. I'm just worried about how to get through the day. I'm not thinking about, you know, the Messiah and things like that. And then John steps on the scene. And he says, prepare the way. Prepare your hearts. And he's, he's trying to bring people back. You know, you're all caught up with all of these other things, but God's chosen one is here. He's coming. Get your hearts right. Prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. And that's, that's kind of the idea of John's baptism. Does that make sense? It's not baptism in the sense that we, when we do believers' baptism. We'll talk about that some other time. But this is something slightly different. Now, I love John's response. That's what's so cool to me. They're like, who are you? Why are you doing this? And then John's response is, let me tell you who I'm not. He just totally deflects. He's like, I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Christ. And so, man, what a, what a way it is to get straight to it. You know, they're, they're, who are you? And he's like, well, let me tell you about someone else. Let me tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Christ. And so just right out the gate, we kind of see how John has this knack for just getting it off of himself and on to Jesus. And we see this over and over and over. And I, I love that. I love that. You know, uh, they said, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. They said, are you the prophet? That sounds strange to us that they would ask such a question. But there were prophecies in the Old Testament, Malachi being one of them. It says in chapter 4 of Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so I could totally go off on a huge rabbit trail here. I will not do that. But uh, they were looking for Elijah. And he said, I am not. So then they're like, well, are you the prophet? Back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now that would have been a prophecy of the Messiah. But they don't seem to understand this because they make a distinction between Elijah, the prophet, and the Christ. And so, nonetheless, that would be kind of the reference there. When they say, are you the prophet, that would be the prophet that they're talking about. And so they're all kinds of confused. And I love John's response here. This is just remarkable to me. Verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So John's like, Look, I'm merely a voice. I'm just a voice crying out. He's quoting from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Just a side note, this is fascinating to me. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses would reject that Jesus is God. But then in Isaiah, it says that the voice of one crying in the wilderness, we know who that is. Who's the voice of one crying in the wilderness? It's John the Baptist, right? But in Isaiah 43, what is he saying? Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John the Baptist prophesied, spoken of in Isaiah 43, would be saying, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh. And so that's still in the Jehovah's Witness Bible. They didn't catch that one. 
And so when you point that out, they don't know what to say. And so just a side note, you know, put that in your pocket. And so um, John the Baptist was prophesied of old in Isaiah that he would be the voice in the wilderness saying, prepare yourself for our God, for the coming one, the Christ. So, you know, modern day vernacular, I kind of picture in my mind this delegation being like, okay, mister, I'm only a voice. Why are you doing this? You know, who authorized you to do this? And so John is like, I'm so glad you asked. Because now he goes full in on the supremacy of Christ. They just teed that one up perfectly. And so now, so first we saw John's testimony of himself. It was just a very humble deflection. It's like, no, no, don't even, I'll tell you who I'm not. Okay, and now I'm just a voice. But I'm going to tell you about someone else who is so much greater than myself. And so as John launches out into this testimony concerning Christ, this is the supremacy of Christ, the one who is supreme, the one who is glorious, the one who truly deserves all of our attention, the one who truly deserves all of our praise. And so John, verse 26, he says, it says, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you who you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So again, we have kind of this little deflection thing going on here. John says, okay, it's true. I baptize with water, but there's someone else that i got to tell you about. He is so much greater than me. And that's, that's really what seems to be going on here. He just kind of acknowledges what they say and then beelines away from it to Christ. I have to tell you about someone who is, who is greater in every way. He says, I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off. Now, there's some significance to this culturally. David Guzik, he says that among rabbis and their disciples, so between the rabbis and their, and their students, their disciples, there was a teacher-student relationship that had a potential for abuse. And so it was entirely possible that a rabbi might expect unreasonable service from their disciples. One thing that was considered too low for a rabbi to expect from his disciples was the untying of the rabbi's sandal strap. I mean, you think? That's kind of weird, you know? Like, untie my shoes, student. And so they, they recognized there was a potential for abuse and so there was kind of like this unwritten rule here, that's too low. So don't even do that. I mean, come on. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says, Every service which a slave performs for his master, said one rabbi, a disciple will perform for his teacher, except to untie his sandal strap. So, I mean, evidently there were rabbis who were saying that, you know, a slave and a master, it's really kind of one and the same with a rabbi and his student. And that the rabbi will do everything for the, or the student will do everything for the rabbi that a slave would do for his master, except to untie his sandal strap. This is all kinds of weirdness in general, you know, but somehow they've really seized upon this one thing. Like, that's just too low. We wouldn't even do that. Well, John didn't even consider himself worthy to do that. He said, that's too high of an honor for me. I can't even untie Jesus' shoes. I can't even take off his, his uh, sandals, whatever they were, whatever it was Jesus wore on his feet. 
And so he said, I can't, I can't even take that honor upon myself. I love that, man. I love the humility in that. Jesus is too glorious. He is too worthy. And I am not. And you know, this really puts um, the whole foot washing thing in John chapter 13 in perspective. Because if there was this saying in Jesus' day that it is too, too low to ask a student to untie his teacher's shoes... Imagine how the master teacher washed his students' feet. I mean, that, if, if just to untie one's shoe was that low, I mean, imagine for the master teacher to wash his disciples' feet, which is infinitely lower, worse, more awkward or, or gross. And so you have the King of glory, the heavenly one, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, who existed from eternity past with heavenly glory equal to the Father and the Spirit, takes on flesh, is born in time and space through the, the miraculous virgin birth, and then he, he lives so humbly, so quietly there in obedience to his earthly parents, comes on the scene, and then washes his disciples' stinking nasty feet. I mean, talk about going from as high as you can go to as low as you can go. And so that, that's just amazing to me And when you consider that in this context. And so when we consider, but then he didn't stop there. He went even lower. He died the death of the cross. Jesus was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was rejected. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was tortured. And he was ultimately crucified on a cross. And so all of that, you just consider from how high our Savior went to how low He went for us to save us. Is He not worthy to be exalted? Is He not worthy of our loudest praise? And that's exactly what is said back in Philippians 2. That's why He's exalted. Because He was willing to do such a thing. Because He went from heavenly glory to being the form of a servant, dying the most horrific death imaginable. Therefore, God exalted him. God exalted him to the highest place, and therefore it is our joy, it is our honor to exalt the Son as well. Amen? Hallelujah. And so John was all about that, man. John exalted the Christ. And so what we see next here is John's testimony concerning Christ's sacrifice. Concerning his sacrifice. Verse 29 it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. So this phrase he keeps using, he was after me. John was like six months older than Jesus. He came on the scene a little bit before Jesus. But Jesus is before John. That is to say, he outranks John because he preexisted John. I talked about that last week. And that's what John keeps kind of using that, that, that language here. So John the Baptist sees Jesus. Here he is. Jesus is on the scene. And he says, Behold, everybody look. Pay attention carefully. Here is the one. Look to him. And who is it? It is the Lamb of God. It is the Lamb of God. This is prophetic at the time, John the Baptist. I'm sure people were probably, what in the world does that even mean? I mean, the language of a sacrificial lamb was common in that day, but they would probably have no clue what is meant by this because 
God sent one, God's anointed one, the Messiah was expected to be a conquering king. A conquering king. That's what they were looking for. And so a lamb, a lamb of God. And it's amazing in Revelation chapter 5, in that heavenly scene, there was no one found worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God and to open it. And one of the elders in heaven said, Behold, the Lion of Judah who has prevailed. He is worthy and he is able to open the scroll. And then when he looks for the lion, what does he see? A lamb. A lamb. as The one standing there as a lamb who had been slain. That's amazing to me. That is, that is glorious. And, and that is God's son. And that is the one to whom John testifies. He would be the ultimate sacrifice. So all those sacrifices that took place in the Old Testament, that could not wash away sin. It was very temporary. The priests were in the temple day after day after day, year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, because it was not sufficient. It could never be sufficient to wash away sin. But the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb that God Himself would provide in His Son, that would be a sacrifice that would be a one-time sacrifice, once and for all, never to be repeated again, sins forever forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west, dumped into the bottom of the ocean. Amen? That is God's ultimate sacrifice. That is the Lamb of God provided by God Himself. And this is the one who takes away the sins of the world, John says. The sins of the world. The superiority of the sacrifice. It's far greater than our puny little minds are ever going to know. And somehow we think that our sin can compete with the cross of Jesus. That blows me away. There's, I don't know if there's any greater blasphemy than that, when we think somehow our sin can't be forgiven. Somehow, you know, I know that Jesus died, but you don't know what I've done. That blows my mind. And we're guilty of that, I think. You don't know what God has done. You don't know what Christ has done. You don't know the price that was paid there on Calvary's tree. This is the Lamb of God provided by God Himself who sent the whole world, the whole world. He addresses the sins of the world, not just there in Israel, not just there in Jerusalem at that temple, not just there at that point in time, but in every generation all around the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue. There would be those who are saved, a countless multitude because of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? The superiority of Christ and His atoning sacrifice. And so now John testifies to Jesus' heavenly authorization. Verse 32, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and He remained upon Him. I did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on Him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John acknowledged that he didn't know it was Jesus at first. John didn't know. They were relatives. We don't know kind of how closely they grew up together, but he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. But then God revealed this to John by virtue of a miraculous sign. He said, the one whom you see the, the dove descend and fall upon and remain, this is the one. The one upon whom the Spirit falls is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. So this is kind of heaven's endorsement, heaven's seal, heaven's authorization as the Spirit of God 
would come down upon Jesus. He would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was kind of a transitional, preparatory baptism. It was just prepare yourself for the one who comes who is greater than I. But this one, this is the ultimate baptism. This is the final immersion into life everlasting. Life everlasting. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. 12. He says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus immerses us into life everlasting. John's baptism was one that that got people ready for what Christ was going to do, but Christ came. And and he, He is the one who saves he is the one who brings us into life everlasting. That's the baptism that we need. Amen? That is the ultimate baptism. And that, that, is, that baptism takes place when you believe on the name of Jesus Christ. When you believe Jesus for salvation. And that, that's where it is, folks. Many of us in here, we know that baptism. We have been baptized into life everlasting, into the body of Christ. And so knowing... That outside of Christ, we are separated from God. We are dead in our trespass and sin. One day we'll have to stand before a holy God and give an account for all of our unrighteousness. It's more than we could ever even know. Just in a given day. And one day we have no clue just how far we have fallen from God's glorious standard. And then compound that by a whole lifetime of iniquity. And then we have to stand before the one whose glory is like a just a white-hot, burning fury. And we have to answer for that, for our rebelliousness, for our rejection of Him and His goodness. But God, who is love, who is mercy, who is grace, sent the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who has died for our sin. Our sin placed upon the Lamb there on the tree. And He was crushed. Isaiah says that it pleased the Father to bruise him, to crush him for our iniquity. The iniquity of us all was laid upon him on Calvary's cross. As God's wrath was poured out and Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. And then he said, it is finished. I have paid the price. It's accomplished. And then he died. He gave up his spirit. He was buried. On the third day he rose again from the grave victoriously over sin, over death, over Satan. And now he says, believe in me. Trust me. Call upon my name, and I will give you eternal life. You will have my righteousness in your stead. And that's what what happened. Jesus is our substitute. He died in our place on the cross, rose again, and then he gives us his righteousness as a gift. And so when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ and we are accepted in the beloved son and we are baptized upon belief into the church of Jesus Christ, into the body of Christ and we are all one in the spirit. Amen. So that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. That's what he has done and he is still saving many. And he's worthy of glory. He's worthy of worthy of our highest praise. Is he not? Do you believe it? 
Man, act like you believe it then. Come on now. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Should I stop here? Think so? Okay. I'll stop here. I would love to keep going. I had a whole other part of the message, but we're 45 minutes in. So God is worthy of our highest praise. Exalt him. How do you do that? How do we do that? You know, giving God what he deserves, worshiping him, getting into the word, reading the word, understanding more about this glorious one, this saving one, setting your heart and your mind on him, acknowledging him in all that you do. In any given day, how often do you stop to just think about this one who has saved us, who is leading us day by day? Obeying Him, expressing your love towards Him through obedience. That is to exalt Him. Living a life that is consistent with His Word and then sharing the good news with others around us. That is how we exalt Him. Serving Him. Serving Him in the body of Christ. There are so many opportunities here, and not least of which, the children's ministry. We have needs there, folks. After the pandemic and everything, we lost a bunch of our workers and we still can't fire it up today. Our nursery is still not going. We have moms who can't be here because there's no care for their children. How do you think Jesus feels like about that? You know? And, and so you want to exalt Christ? Care for his little ones. Serve the body of Christ. There are people who could be here today because their children are being fed the word of God over there by people in here who have a burning desire to see Christ exalted amongst the little ones. It doesn't take a theologian. It doesn't take a professor. It just takes somebody who was, who's willing to love those kids and tell them, tell them what they know to be a witness of Jesus Christ. If you are born of God and you have the Spirit of God, you can do that. You can exalt Christ in that way. You know, being a part of the body of Christ, that's how we exalt Christ, gathering like this, but also gathering in small groups, which we have started doing, and it's glorious. I praise God for that. If you're not in a small group, get in one. Be a part of the body of Christ in a smaller, more intimate setting. That's how we exalt Christ. We exalt Him corporately. We exalt Him from house to house. We exalt Him in obedience. We exalt Him in service. We exalt Christ Jesus by simply giving Him our hearts. You know, that's what He wants more than anything. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And He's glorified when we give Him our devotion, when we give Him our affection, when we give Him our loyalty. And so let's do that. Let's exalt Christ. We exalt Christ when we live consistently with what we say we believe, and then we share it with others. Father God, we love you so much. Help us to have a burning desire to exalt Christ. Help us have a, a burning desire to make his name known. That we would be so zealous for the glories of Jesus to be spread more deeply in the church and more broadly through the world. Help that to be the thing, Lord, that we get most excited about, that compels us, that drives us, that gets us out of bed in the morning to fall on our face before Jesus and to honor Him, that He even allowed us to awake to a new day in which we can glorify Him. Lord, we praise You. We thank You that You've saved us. Lord, there are those in this room who don't know that salvation. They haven't, they haven't trusted you yet. But Lord, today is the day they can know you. 
They can be washed and forgiven, cleansed, filled, baptized by the Spirit, baptized into the body of Christ, baptized into eternal life. And I pray that today someone would know the saving touch of the exalted King. We give you our lives, Jesus. We give you our lives. Go before us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.